0: Hello, you're listening to a podcast of the best bits of Breakfasters for this week, ending Friday, the 16th of February, 2024. We're on Triple R every weekday morning from 6 to 9 a.m., broadcast live from Melbourne, Australia. Coming up on the pod this week, our favourite foodie, Michael Harden, loves a table for one and talks about the joys of dining out alone. We're also joined by Professor Lisa Given, the Professor of Information Sciences at RMIT, to talk about AI, but Given she was also one of the organizers of Taylor Swift's fanposium. We talk a little bit of Swift as well.
1: And how many sound bowls is too many? I explore my sleep music taste, and we spoke to Director of the Europa Europa Film Festival, Spiro Economopolis.
2: Dr. Jen waded into the very weird science of water shortages, and we went on an emotional roller coaster with theatre maker Marcus Ian McKenzie ahead of his show, The Crying Room. Melbourne's own Drupal R.
3: I'm hungry.
2: It's time to check in with the
4: life of Michael. Morning, Michael Hart. <laughs> Good morning, how are you all? We're well, well, excellent,
2: happy Valentine's Day.
4: Yeah, yeah, yeah I love, that. love Valentine's Day. <laughs> Yeah, it's like one of my least favourite times of the year. But, uh, yeah, that, so that's why I thought today that we'd uh, talk about the uh, joys of dining solo.
1: Love this. Because it's, mm. like, you know,
4: it's like, you know, you've, as Whitney Houston sings about the greatest love of all, you just take yourself out to dinner mm. instead. <laughs> so. But it is, it, I, I really, truly love dining on my own. And there's sort of like, and I know a lot of people have um, fear around it. There's, there's, actually, there's actually a real phobia called solo manjare phobia which mm-hmm. is a sort of – it's um, a hyper-specific variant of social anxiety that people actually cannot eat in public on their own. Wow. So, you know, there is – some people have got that, but I think as in dietary requirements generally, some of them are real and a lot of them are just people <laughs> not wanting to do it. <laughs> so, you know, it's um, – but it's, it's a uh, – but it is a, it's a, it is a sort of specific kind of experience and a lot of people feel like that they don't want to do it because – you know, they might be looked on as loser or lonely or it's the only person, you know, it's sort of like... But I think that there's less and less of that. I think more people, because of the rise of bar and counter-dining, I think it may, it's made it a lot easier to dine on your own. Mm. And um, I can remember a, my, my introduction into it was I was travelling alone in... I was in Sicily, in Palermo, and um, I went to a restaurant and I was kind of not really used to dining on my own. And so, you know, I... Packed. I had books. I Mm -hmm. had journals. I had headphones. I had you know everything. I was like yeah, I had like piling up on either side. Yeah, I could hardly fit the food on the table (laughs) because of all my activities that I had planned. (laughs) Um, But this guy walked in, who was probably maybe in his sixties or something, very well dressed, Italian man, and everything. Just walked in, took a table in the middle of the room, and just sat there. Just looked into space had a little chat with the waiter, you know, and kind of just and ate his way through like three or four course meal and looked so comfortable mm. and actually really cool doing what he was doing. And I was like, that's the sort of level of comfort that you want to be, that you sort of like you're reducing all the noise around the dining experience that you're having so you can concentrate on how you're enjoying the food and you can think, you know, it's sort of like I know that's, I think that, you know, often it's nice to have a book. Or something to have, and these days are obviously phones, which wasn't what I had ba- back in the day. but um, you know you, but it's good to not like not be on that the whole time and just really sort of be in the experience of eating alone. Mm-hmm. and um, you know, and you know there, there's many advantages to it, obviously that you get to eat exactly what you want you know you don't have anybody going i don't like oysters you know it's sort of like which always undermines the experience of eating oysters you know so it's sort of like you need oysters you can eat as many oysters as you want so um i think it's absolutely great you don't you're not sort of negotiating other people's dietries you you know it's sort of like it's actually that great experience and to be able to be in the moment with the food that people have cooked is often you will get, like, it's a heightened eating experience. Like, I've found a couple of times through my work that when I've gone to look at restaurants, where degustation restaurants in particular, I'll do that on my own. And, you know a lot of the time that's a four-hour dining experience where you're sort of sitting there a lot of courses and everything but to do that on your own particularly that kind of food which is sort of like you know that that heightened mm. kind of level of artistry you know with, with people you know the, the chefs being very conscious about every dish making a huge impact mm. and that sort of stuff so it is kind of like being at a gallery in a way and like just being you know having time to sort of look and appreciate the food without another voice in your ear or without distractions or anything like that and so- I feel like
1: it's one of those things that would take practice. It's not something that you Uh, would instantly be comfortable, but it's like maybe you do a really quick dish for the first time. Like a pasta in and out and then you work yourself up to the four-hour degustation solo. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) Yeah. yeah. that's
4: absolutely true because it's like I think also, you know, even like, you know, if you want to put your training wheels on, Mm. go and have a coffee, Mm, just you, and not take, you know, not be on your phone the whole time that you're drinking the coffee. Just be in the room. Great people watching.
0: That's why it's great in yeah. Paris how they have the restaurants where you sit out and all the chairs face yes. out onto the street. Yeah, so you don't even look at the person you're with if you're not alone.
4: Exactly, it's exactly. A, the, it's sort the, of the joy
0: like... of people watching is in yes. Paris.
4: Yeah, it is right there in the middle of it. So you know, it's sort of like I kind of like, and for me, it's sort of it's similar to like um, you know, kind of without getting too woo woo. It's sort of like in you know, a similar kind of self care as something like a massage. You know, it's sort of mm. it's not something that you have to do. <laughs> um but it is a little luxury that you can give yourself every now and again to sort of yeah a little treat and it's sort of like i find it sort of like psychologically refreshing mm. to um and it's kind of like almost like a sign of respect for yourself that you're kind of giving yourself that time to kind of and it's a good way to think and you know get some thoughts clear in your head and well, or sometimes as
0: well as if there's a particular restaurant you really want to try and you're like i can't wait for this person to be available to go with. I just want to go and experience it. So I'm going to go there on my yeah. own. I think yeah. the staff
2: sometimes get a kick out of it too. Yes, yeah. They yeah. them. They can appear almost jealous.
4: <laughs> yeah. yeah, absolutely. And it's sort of like, and that it's one of those things of like talking about getting used to sort of getting better at doing this sort of stuff. Because sometimes you don't want to be true. Like sometimes the staff will treat you like, oh. Who doesn't have any friends, <laughs> lonely in the world. I'll be their friend, so oh. I will talk talk to you all the way through the meal. And it's like, no, no, yeah, you know, yeah. it's like. But you know, most staff are good, and they they'll they get it pretty quickly. But it's nice to have a little chat. You know, you get that sort of interaction with each as each course lands, and sort of you, know, you can discuss the wine you're going to drink. You know, you can have a whole bottle on your own if you want. <laughs> so um, you know, it's like you know, there's there's many many advantages. Listeners, there's no bill fights. Mm. No bill fights oh. exactly. There'll be yeah, no clink of coins on the on the saucer. So, <laughs> so
2: I mean, it's I
4: do it a lot, but I, as
2: you mentioned, fine dining. I probably do have a ceiling of like this experience is maybe a little bit too good. Yes, from just me.
4: Yeah, absolutely. I and mean, it is there there is that thing. It sort of it does seem to increase the stakes the more money you're spending mm. and the more that you're in a restaurant that often, you know, it is a lot of the time tables for two. You know, so it's sort of like, and you do, you are there on your own, but it's sort of like, you know, it's it's it is practice, and it's just sort of a sense of you know, faking it to you, making it kind of thing mm. in the terms of looking comfortable and everything. But it is a totally great experience, and it's sort of like, uh, you know, if you're feeling sort of a little insecure about it, you just sort of look down and think about all the poor suckers that have to make small talk all the oh, way through yeah. their through their dinner. <laughs> you know, it's kind there. of like, you know, it's like instead of enjoying the food. So.
1: Do you have a preference or eat the view when dining alone? Like where you gravitate to in the restaurant, like where at you the sit. bar, yeah, where you sit, or in a corner, or do you go central? Always the bar. Always, the bar. always the bar. Oh, bar, really? Okay. Yeah, yes. I love Theater. eating at
4: the bar, and it's sort of like because then you do. There is a sort of sense of. Um, companionship, you know, with mm. other people eating at the bar and that sort of stuff. You've got a direct one-on-one with the with the bartender if you need anything, you know, that sort of stuff. I I do I do I don't mind like eating at a table is great too, mm. particularly if there's a good view and that sort of stuff. But yeah, I always will gravitate. I
2: feel when I'm at the bar, I am obliged, or I'm wondering if I am obliged to uh, to talk, mm. or to, to converse, or to be. The guy, the friendly guy at the bar.
4: Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, friendly slash annoying. (laughs) Um, Yeah, yeah. yeah. But but you don't, like, it's sort of like you can do, that's the beauty of it. Like, if you you go in there and you're looking for a little conversation, then sitting at the bar is a good, Thing because you know you, you'll have a chat with the bartender, they're around yep. that sort of stuff, and there you know, and often at the bar you will like people sitting close to you might comment on you know ask you what, what you're eating or you know that mm. sort of stuff. Mm. But it's it's quite easy to just sort of wall yourself off, just kind of like by staring into space and looking like you're thinking about. That's something right. Really important are
0: there are there places or style of restaurants that you find are best for dining alone?
4: I think well, it's sort of like. Most of them are okay. Any anywhere with a bar, obviously, mm. you know that that will serve you up at the bar as well. I think that's that's a really good thing. But you know, funnily enough, I think shared like the whole idea of shared plates and shared dining has made a lot of restaurants really good for. for own I mean, solo diners as well because a lot of those dishes are sort of there. They're in, you know, I would have form. thought the opposite. Well, it's sort of like it depends on like because with shared dining, it's like you tend to be ordering a lot of smaller dishes mm. to sort of make up a meal, you know, rather than, you know, you're not going to go for the, you know, giant, steak or whatever steak, but there's a lot yes yeah, a lot going on there and i've Lobster. noticed i noticed um you know, i've been in a few places over the last year that when i was dining solo they um asked me they said to me look if you want if there's anything on here that you want we can do you a half serve mm. so you know a lot of so you can yeah. ask for that as well like to that. sort of see if they you can do it do a half serve and then you can see so you there's more of the more of the menu available to I mean, you so
2: yeah. sometimes i'll volunteer to be at the bar because you don't want to If the place fills up, you don't want to be at a table and taking up space. And
4: and the restaurant people will love you for that because it is like solo dining does come at a cost to the restaurant in some ways. Like there is a restaurant in London that um, it's very small and very expensive and basically if you order a table, like when you book, you book a table. So there's no thing on the book, there's there's no ability on the booking site to... Um, book for one. Mm. You have to book for two and you will be paying for two. Right. Mm. So it's sort of like, you know, it's kind of that twin share kind of, you know, double versus single kind of thing. To make
1: it up, you have to drink for two, get drunk and then sing a song. I know, I know.
4: Like, you know, so there's no downside to this. (laughs)
2: What about a bottle of wine? Uh, Because I would have ordered a bottle of wine because in for a penny, in for a pound Mm. rather than buy the glass. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Back yourself. Yeah, always back yourself,
4: you know. It's kind of like, you know, it's great and it's like it's impressive.
0: I like to box myself in. Because <laughs> I'm like, if I order a whole bottle of it, what if I like to change it up, try something different yeah, well, yeah, for glass
4: that's, too? That's the other thing, you know, because I think um, wineless, there's increasingly... Not for this reason, you know. Increasingly, because people are drinking less, the mm. by the glass lists are expanding, and you know, getting more. Like you, you can spend a lot of money on a single glass because they've got the Coravan systems and that sort of stuff. So it is. Um, but the, the, you've got more choice now as well. So drinking, you know, by the glass mm. is is another. Aren't
2: you a show. bit of a red flag on your own? You being
4: you, that it's like, oh, all the review is in. Mm. Yeah, yeah. It's like it's not. It's not. It's not really all that easy. <laughs> <laughs> you can able to just sneak in. It's sort of like you know. Particularly, you know, when they start, when the rose petals start coming kind of through yeah, my heart. Yeah. Sort of, Michael's dragging uh, a blow up doll yeah, yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah, Exactly, exactly.
4: Yeah, bus one lane. Of those, one of those traffic bus lane dolls. <laughs> yeah, <absolutely. laughs> They're just very tired. <laughs>
2: Michael Harden, uh, well, sincere happy Valentine's Day yes, uh, on your, your
4: own.
5: own. <laughs> Independent Melbourne Radio, 3RRR.
2: Lisa Given is Professor of Information Sciences at RMIT and is in the dead centre of the Zeitgeist with her academic focus on AI and as organiser of the Swiftposium uh, on now with its academic focus on the global pop superstar Taylor Swift. Lisa, welcome to Breakfasters.
3: Thank you for having me. Uh,
2: now, let's start with AI, can we? Yeah. Where, where does Australia sit in its approach to AI regulations?
3: I would say we're playing catch up. Um, we've just really started talking about what our strategy is going to be. Uh, we've seen other countries coming out with uh, their own strategies ahead of us. So I feel like we're, we're on the train, uh, but we're just starting to kind of really figure out where we're going and how we're going to get there.
2: And how many different trains are there globally?
3: <laughs> no, sadly, a lot of trains. <laughs> um, this is one area where, you know, if we could actually get countries talking together, you know, there was a large summit, they have agreed to some strategies, absolutely. And a. Australia was at the table, Uh, but we are still kind of creating our own way as we go, which is very complicated for people and particularly when so much of the world now is connected. Mm. Um, It makes it really difficult to be thinking about a singular approach that is by Australia for Australia only.
2: And what are the strategies to do what? Uh,
3: Really, it's around uh, what kind of... um, Guardrails could we put around these systems? So there's no doubt that we want AI innovation. We know that it can bring really great things to many industries, um, to everyday people. But we actually have to be really mindful of the potential risks involved and where we need to maybe be cautious or even say we don't want to go down certain roads. Mm. Is there an element of sitting back
1: and waiting, seeing what other countries are doing to see how that unfolds for them?
3: It, a- it has a bit of a feel that way. I think they have, you know, our government certainly has been facing a lot of concern from India industry uh, about moving too fast or going too deep and potentially stifling innovation. So I think that we have been a little more cautious than what's happening, say, in the EU, where they're taking a much more bold approach.
2: So what is the federal government's response? So there was a consultation paper released last year, the federal government's replied, what's in it?
3: Yep. So this is an interim report, which means for me, a, a lot of open ended questions still rather than answers. What it basically said was, uh, they're going to take an approach that really focuses primarily at the first level on high risk situations. So areas like perhaps medical health issues, uh, you know, um, autonomous vehicles, areas where we know that there could be some life and death circumstances. Um, they're putting an advisory body together that will help to kind of put some boundaries around what is high risk? How will this work? Uh, But we're not seeing a lot of guidance in terms of things that are lower risk, but in my view, could still, for example, lead to misinformation, which could then be harmful.
2: Okay. So we have misinformation, which is a concern for you. What are some other concerns?
3: Um, I think a lot of it is really the... um, the gaps in the report or, or the areas that are just not defined yet. So, for example, we have seen um, significant risk around bias in recruiting strategies. We know the government has said hiring practices is one area, but we're not actually seeing very much there around uh, deep fakes. and we've seen a lot in the news of late around deep fake pornography, for example. We know that people can be deeply harmed by that. How, what kinds of guardrails would we need around those kinds of technologies?
0: Is the risk that we will... The government will think of guardrails, as you call it, and then by the time they've developed them, the technology is thought of a way to get around it?
3: Absolutely. And no. and one of the, the question marks in the report for me is around the nature of that advisory body. They've named it as a temporary body. But because technologies are shifting, there will be things that five years, 10 years from now, we can't even know what's going to come down the pipe. So um, having, I think, a permanent body, so people that they can go to and rely on as technology evolves will be really critical.
2: Do you use AI as a academic?
3: I do. i, I I mean, I play with it. I use that phrase a lot. Um, I think we're still very much in a, a testing phase around what's the potential here. Um, I, I play with it partly so that I can fully understand what these systems are, are doing. And I can really understand then how are other people experimenting? What are some of the limitations of these systems? Um, so I at the moment, I don't see it critical to my work as a tool, but that's partly because the technology's not quite there yet to support me in the way I would need it to. Mm.
2: Is there a is there a country that you actually is think is demonstrating leadership in this area?
3: Uh, Certainly the EU, uh, European Union, we're seeing major steps forward in terms of, well, for example, what is high risk? You know, Australia hasn't really come out and said, these are the things that we would define it in this way, or this is how we think, you know, we should move forward on this. The EU has already been uh, listing very specific details, and and hopefully that will simply be us not reinventing the wheel. I think if we turn to the EU and and other countries that have forged ahead, um, then we should should be able to come up with some clear strategies quickly.
2: Mm. Uh, Deep fakes I suppose is part of the Venn diagram that overlaps with your other sphere of influence presently. Can you Talk us through what you've been up to the last couple of days.
3: Right, last couple of days. Well, um, I organised or co-organised the fanposium uh, for Taylor Swift, which happened on Sunday here at the Capitol Theatre. Um, and th- there is this Venn diagram of, of AI, deep fakes and Taylor Swift. Uh, that's certainly been very sadly in the news uh, because there were a number of deep date- fake images that were uh, very quickly, I I saw one report in front of, you know, 97 million people Mm. saw these images of Taylor Swift, which was um, horrific. But at the same time, her status in the world has really elevated that issue, because immediately it was front and center we had lawmakers in the US saying we need to act on this now and we also had a huge you know uprising from the fans which again fits in really nicely around fanposium because her fans really struck out and said we need to protect taylor swift they started blitzing the internet mm. with other images positive images positive videos to to combat the deep fake
1: mm.
3: i mean how could this
1: like translate for you know More kind of everyday people who might find themselves in a similar situation, like what change came about from the deep fake. Taylor Swift situation?
3: Yeah, well, I think part of it is is heightened awareness, which is always a positive. In terms of legislative change, that may be slower to come, obviously. Here in Australia, we're actually very lucky that we have uh, the eSafety Commission. Um, anyone who is uh, a victim of a deep fake or any other kind of, um, uh, you know, image based abuse can actually use the resources of the eSafety Commission to seek help and advice, and actually to um, hopefully track down the perpetrator of that abuse.
0: Is it quite hard to track down the people who create these images?
3: Uh, it can be, yeah. because obviously uh, they're very tech-savvy. They know how to cover their, their tracks. Um, but there's also issues just around people being um, humiliated, embarrassed when they are a victim of this type of abuse. And so it's really also about making people feel safe to actually say, this has happened, I need support, I need help, and ultimately for legislators to say, we're not going to stand for this kind of abuse.
2: Mm. What about scams? What role does AI play in scam?
3: Oh, scams. Well, this is, again, wherever there's uh, money to be made, there'll be a scammer there looking for a way to use technology to make more cash. We're certainly seeing a lot of people using AI um, to more quickly reach out to many people, to come up with common... Uh, strategies, phrases that they can use, say on, on texting people to hook them into believing that uh, this may be a friend of yours we're certainly seeing deep fake uh, voice um, you know technology being used as well. so the idea there is that someone could take a recording of your voice, for example, um, and then send a note to your mother and saying you know i'm in deep trouble, I need some cash. Can you send it my way. Goodness.
2: And do you see any, do you employ for yourself any personal guardrails that being ahead of the curve to protect yourself?
3: I think a lot of what I do is actually understanding what the technology can do and really just using the things that are already at my disposal. Um, In my line of work, I'm very heightened, for example, to phishing scams or other things that uh, little tells that I know um, show me that this is not a real person, this is not someone that I know. So I don't think people at this stage have to have any special skill or technology. A lot of it is actually about understanding what how these are being misused and um, many for example banks are providing advice to customers about how to protect themselves how to look out for scams and so I would encourage people really to look at look at their bank for advice look at the e-safety commissioner there's there's lots of advice to guide you. And
0: are you going to Taylor Swift?
3: I'm not going to Taylor Swift. I didn't get Unless tickets. you got a ticket for me. Oh, <laughs>
0: unfortunately, we, the RRR budget doesn't extend that far.
2: <laughs> Can you, uh, on that, so there was a call out for academic papers and the submissions, what, maybe 400 from 60 yeah. countries?
3: Yes, correct.
2: Can you explain what's going on?
3: what's going on. Well, people love Taylor Swift. That's number one. But wherever you've got, uh, you know, cultural icons, you've got researchers who are studying fan cultural icon and what it means to people. Now that could cut across, uh, for example, people in business and economics, looking at someone like Taylor Swift in terms of the impact on tourism, the impact on our, our um, society that way. We've also got people who are looking at it from a music industry standpoint. What does this mean for the industry? How is this reshaping how we think about music? You've got people in um, English or history or different disciplines looking at lyrics and and songwriting and how people engage with those. So I think one of the critical pieces is that Taylor Swift's reach from an academic standpoint is very, very diverse. There are a lot of people studying um, her impact on the world the same way they have with The Beatles or Elvis or Madonna.
2: Yeah. And is Taylor Swift aware? She she knows – how do you leave? Do you have any insight into how you'd leave knowing that there's an academic conference about you? (laughs)
3: About you, other than hiding under the the bed? Yeah. Um, I mean, I suspect she will know about this, partly because she has a team of ABLE advisors. She's got, you know, an entire machine behind her, obviously. And um, she's also very uh, protective of her brand and her business. Um, This is, I would think, a positive. Uh, You know, anybody that's turning a spotlight and obviously... um, there are lots of fans that are involved in this conference. I'm sure there'll be lots of research that's very positive around Taylor Swift. It doesn't mean it will all be positive. Uh, we'll see what, what comes after the end of the couple of days. But um, like all academics, we try to look at things from all sides.
2: Yeah. All right. Well, Lisa Given, good luck getting tickets. <laughs> Thank t- you. T- try not <laughs> to get scammed on your way. If indeed. Indeed. Uh, Professor of Information Sciences at RMIT, and a Swifty expert and AI aficionado. Uh, we'll look forward to having you back on the show. Lisa Given, thank you.
3: Pleasure. Thank you.
1: I'm currently um, exploring a a new genre of music, uh, ambient sleep music. Great. Just trying to revamp a bit of my sleep hygiene, Mm. I guess. Thinking about getting one of those alarms that like slowly um, lightens the room, like a light, I guess, to help you kind of rise. Gently. Gently, yeah, and... Have been listening to some music tracks to go to sleep and quickly learning like it is, there's so much to consider when choosing like a track. It's incredible and it's like a delicate balance. Like, first of all, you kind of have to decide like what, there's no shortage of tracks. Mm. So you're like, which one to choose? It's really quite overwhelming. Mm. It's like, do you want to float to sleep? Do you want a mm. deep sleep? Do you want the ocean sounds? Do you want the rainforest? Do you want the rainforest at dawn? Oh, it's different. Oh, yeah. Do you want a beach in Madagascar or do you want more of a local beach? It's hard oh, squeaky to. Not... Beach. Sque- exactly. it's so squeaky beach. Exactly. Do you want the sound of the squeaky sand? <laughs> do you want the water? Do you want the rain? Mm. I know. So it's just, it's a delicate balance to get right. It's a- the, the
0: um, paralysis of choice when you're just trying to get to sleep.
1: Yeah. Some of the titles as well of the songs are really quite ominous. There's one track I was looking at. I think it's kind of a famous one. Someone recommended it online, Afterlife, A Deeper Silence. <laughs> <laughs> well, there was another one, The Void, 14. Mm. Yeah. I think duration is an important consideration as well. Mm-hmm. So I'm just kind of just working my way through. Are you some... making
0: a playlist like you you know or are you just putting it on and then getting them them to choose similar tracks for you?
1: Yeah, I'm just kind of um going through, like, a, a playlist yeah, that I've yeah. found online. Yeah. So, like, floating, floating 2.0 mm. rainforest and just kind of trial and error. I am learning a few things. I kind of like the the deep, like, um, synthesized kind of droney sounds mm. To, mm. to sleep to. But woo, woo, woo,
0: woo, woo. it,
1: yeah. I can just come over and do that. <laughs> <laughs> it's lovely to fall asleep to, but it can tip quite quickly. Like I woke and I think it was like maybe a three hour track. I woke when it was still going and I felt quite fraught. Like you can go from like feeling really relaxed to drifting off to sleep to then quickly feeling like you're boarding a spaceship in the mm. middle of the desert and you're like, what is happening? <laughs> so I think I definitely moving like on from that experience, I and now just pick one hour tracks to fall asleep to. I don't want to re-wake. When the sound is still on. Yeah. When it's still on. Yeah. Um, No birds. No, too distracting. Too distracting. And look, one bird here and there, lovely. Again. Oh, but like a cacophony. (laughs) Yes, No. And it can happen just like so quickly. You can be drifting off and then you go, didn't need that. Didn't need that tweet.
0: Oh, and it depends on the bird. Yeah. Like no one's putting cockatoos
1: in it. Oh, no. oh okay. now that I could get on board with. No streams? Can't do streams. Why not? Streams are lovely. Because I already feel like I get up a lot during the night to go to the toilet. So oh, anything water related, no, it's just going to be in my mind of like this is going to make me need to go to We're the like rain? Not into rain either. Oh,
0: my gosh. Rain on a tin roof? Give me the real thing. Like uh, that is
1: one of the perks of winter. Like I'm going to hold out and enjoy that. I don't. I don't want to simulate that.
0: I used to listen. When I first got an iPhone, it was mm. one of the first apps I had. Mm. I don't even think it exists anymore. But it was some. You know, you could have. You could also like throw in music and ambient sounds with it. Yes. Anyway, and I remember having a listening having like a rain sound playing, mm-hmm. and waking up thinking, "Oh no, it's raining this morning," because <gasps> it was I've forgotten that I put it on, and then looking out the window, and being like, "Oh, it's sunny!" Oh, it ah. was just a real real trip. Oh, and so it's... trick yourself. Yeah, it's another way that I like to live on the edge. <laughs> Pleasantly
1: surprised, misdirection, <laughs> tricking
0: yourself. Uh, so there's not a stream outside my window, but I love the rain noises.
1: Uh, yeah, I like the noise. Like, So I you,
0: don't want, you, you don't want, do you want more like a wall of sound? Because you're saying no birds, no water. Mm. You just want like a
1: white noise? No, I like the, like the music, mm. like that kind of ambient kind of... Like I said, like that kind of low, droney sound, I find really quite relaxing. I enjoy a flute, a bit of a bamboo flute coming through. That feels like a summer holiday. See, I like to kind of work with the seasons, not yeah. like you. That makes me feel like I could be somewhere else. A
6: mm. bit of a
1: bamboo flute just trickling <laughs> in. I go, oh, that's nice.
2: I mean, visiting someone's house and they've got the wind chimes somewhere. Mm. Blimey! I mean, how do people tolerate that? Yeah. yeah, like you never know when it's going to chime because no. it's
0: not—it's not rhythmic. No, so it's yeah, it's like hearing ding, a dripping tap, ding, ding, ding. You know, and it's you, just
2: like random. You're you held in a constant <laughs> state of suspense. Mm, yeah. <laughs> when's the next chime? <laughs> when's this next relaxing
0: <laughs> chime? When is it? And I'm asleep. Well, do you listen to white noise, brown noise, pink noise?
2: Well, yeah, Dr. Jen's recommended some of them, and, and I genuinely. I was intrigued, but I'd prefer it. I don't like fooling myself. I'd like to face the world okay. as it is, not as it should be. Oh, and geez. so if there, is a, if there is a pedestrian crossing or whatever outside the door or if there's a bus car playing electric guitar two p.m. at 2 a.m. or whatever, which happens, I prefer to just
1: live with it. Mm, that's interesting. So maybe it's like avoidant. White, I find
0: white noise helpful to mask sounds. Mm. So I think I've mentioned before we have, a, we have a party house behind us. Yes. And put on white noise because we put on white noise in Rudy the baby's room, yep. helps him sleep, and then we've got a separate one that we put on when they have had parties on a Monday night till 4 a.m. Okay. Uh, and it helps. Mm. Yeah. So I like to block out the outside world. But, and, but that's not music as such.
1: Yeah, Uh, yeah, it's interesting Uh, because I have quite. I live not far from a busy road, and I suppose there is a lot of noise. But I suppose uh, I don't think I'm doing it to block out noise. I do have like a lovely um, kind of natural environment sound. There's about four about four hundred meters from my place. There's netball courts, so I often go and they play late. And I often go to sleep or I'm getting into bed and I can still hear, like, the whistles oh, going. Oh, really? The, yeah, the I live and breathe sport. <laughs> <laughs> Not only do I read the headlines, I can fall asleep to the sound of whistles <laughs> sound of at 10pm, McSnaple. <laughs> That's late. Yeah, I know. They play so late. Well, Oslo, it's very
0: popular. Oslo Davis is on next and yep. he texted in at the adjacent studio. He said, I think Max Richter's recent ambient album, Sleep, goes for hours and is the most popular classical music of all time. Mm. Yeah, wow. Yeah, I've
2: used that, not to sleep but just to enjoy. I think maybe there was an event where you'd ju- – yes. and everyone slept.
0: <gasps> was that for Rising maybe?
2: Yeah, or Mofo.
0: Yeah, a, sorry, s- a sleep concert. Yeah. That, like eight hours.
1: Mm. That's right. That sounded really. That'd be cool. great if you're a pickpocket, wouldn't it? <laughs> That's a boom. That's booming business. <laughs> head to the sleeve concert. But Clean I,
2: up. I prefer just six hours of straight in, in, uninterrupted tinnitus.
0: Triple R on FM, digital, online, and via the app.
5: Thanks so much for being here. It means a lot.
0: Now, in its third
2: year, Europa Europa Film Festival celebrates new European films and gives local audiences a window into the experiences of a diverse continent, incorporating over 50 countries and spanning three weeks of Australian premiere screenings and special events. The artistic director of Europa. Europa is Spiro Econom- Economopoulos, and to tell us about it, the longtime film curator and reviewer joins us now. Spiro, welcome to Breakfasters.
6: Uh, thank you for having me on. Tell us,
2: where, tell us about your association with cinema. This isn't your
6: first time. No. Uh,
2: this isn't your first rodeo.
6: It's not. No. Uh, before this role, I was the uh, program director for the Melbourne Queer Film Festival for about eight years, so um, that was a, a great gig, and before that, I was working at Acme. I was in the film programming team So I've been doing film programming uh, for quite a while now And uh, yeah, it's been nice to dive into into this after MQF as well Well,
2: How does Europa Europa fit into the film ecosystem?
6: Oh, look, I think uh, obviously there's a lot, of, uh, a lot of film festivals in Melbourne and, but I think what's great about Europa Europa is it actually just brings all these different elements and different countries together in one program. So I feel the programming itself feels quite sort of diverse and kind of organic in that way because you are looking at different countries, different stories, different voices um, and it's kind of really interesting to see the threads that kind of go through them as well. Mm.
2: Now we say 50 countries, how does that work?
6: Well, it's not. Uh, I mean, I think it's kind of about finding the films that you know are strong. You know, that, that that's how I always worked at MQFF as well. Is always about the movie, and you know, some some countries are probably weighed higher than others. As some countries that have bigger film industries than others, so you kind of just go with um, the stronger films, and you know, you you look for you know you look for representation, diversity as well, and you know, I think that's there also now in the program. Mm. And you've watched them all. I've watched. All of them, yeah, <laughs> and even the ones that didn't make it.
1: And how important is it selecting the film for the opening night and like setting the tone for the yeah, festival?
6: Yeah, yeah, that's always a tricky one. Uh, I, I've always had this experience even with other festivals where you find the film straight away, like mm-hmm. immediately, or it just happens at the last minute. And uh, this was probably something a little bit in between where it was kind of when I saw it, I was like, oh, this is a great movie, it would be a great opening night. And it's always just trying to get that tone and balance between something that uh, is going to be a, a crowd drawer mm. as well and something that's going to really impress the audiences and kind of set the tone for the festival as well. Mm. So it's, it's a little bit of all of that.
2: What is it about European films that remain remarkable and memorable
6: and an arbiter of excellence? I mean, look, there's just such an incredible history, isn't there? And also an incredible history of filmmakers, filmmakers that kind of borrow from each other and it's interesting kind of programming this this festival where we have some retrospectives and, you know, there's Contempt, for example, the Goddard film, the, the score for that movie is actually used uh, uh, in, a, in another movie that we're screening in the festival. So it's kind of mm. interesting the way that they all kind of speak to each other and kind of draw on their own history. So I think, I think that's what's really exciting about it.
0: Is there still a bit of fear for Australian audiences with European films, I was noticing how on the weekend we had the actors Mm. and Barbie won Best International Film. (laughs) (laughs) Good movie. (laughs) Right, but is there something that audiences... Why, why we still see them as mm. so art house and so foreign? Yeah. Is, it, is it just the subtitles, or is there something else? Look, I think
6: subtitles probably play into it, unfortunately. But you know, then we we there are those crossover hits like Parasite and Anatomy of a Fall that you know, I guess, in art house um, standards actually are quite big hits. So, I think every industry has its niche. You know what I mean? And like whether it's music and film and. I think films no no different in that way where there's an audience for it and it kind of plays big with that particular audience so you know that's okay. I
2: wonder if more people the more people that use subtitles at home will become accustomed to subtitles.
6: Yeah, well that's a good point. You know like I have subtitles on all the time when I'm watching everything on and on streamers these days because, you know, flat-screen TVs are, you know, awful. <laughs> so actually, yeah, I mean, that's a good point. I think people maybe wouldn't be so bothered about it. So what mm. are some of the highlights we can look forward to? Well, first I'll say everything mm. and then I'll pick some. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, look, I look, the opening of my film great, Promised Land, which stars uh, Mads Mikkelsen, who uh, won the Best Actor at the European Film Awards, is uh, one of the big awards... Uh, sort of out there uh, and he plays an a impoverished soldier who's given this plot of land to cultivate and, and for the king, basically, he sort of comes to head with uh, another landowner there and it's kind of this battle of wills and so that's a, a really great movie.
2: Can I ask about Mads Mikkelsen? Could he do anything
6: and he chooses to
2: do what he does?
6: Yeah, look, uh, he's uh, he's one of those actors. He's one of those European actors, I suppose, that you know Hollywood love sort of either using him as a villain, mm-hmm. mostly as a villain, interestingly enough, and then he does all these other kind of films in Europe where he's not that, and so it's kind of interesting the way Hollywood uses yeah. foreign actors, actually, uh, where it's like, get him as a Bond villain, or something, <laughs> yeah. something yeah. like that. He's got yeah.
0: such a funny voice. Yeah, yeah, okay? exactly.
6: Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he can have a cat. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I think it's a really great movie. Uh, another movie that I actually really liked, I was just thinking about it on the way here, is a, a Spanish film called Upon Entry, uh, about this couple who are migrating to the US. He's a, he's a urban nurse and she's a contemporary dancer. And when they're at customs, uh, they get stopped. And the whole movie becomes this very tense interrogation where... Ultimately, their kind of relationship is kind of called into question as well and they begin to kind of realise that they actually don't really know each other and it's a really, really interesting film and uh, I really like the way it kind of plays out. And We've all had that experience, even when we're not guilty of walking through those custom oh, no. doors mm. where it's like, I've done something, yeah. <laughs> I've done something. And so I think it kind of replays really on those kind of anxieties and fears and so it's a really interesting film.
2: Mm. Uh, and a lot of these films... W- you might not see again you might
6: see it's a good chance to get in early what that well that's the other thing as well there's some films that are getting released but uh you know same thing with MQFF. there was a lot of these movies you never get to see again unless someone picks them up so and it's nothing it just has nothing about their quality it's just that unfortunately you know uh there's a limited amount of films that get picked up by distributors here so mm. um yeah i mean this is an opportunity to get to see films that you might not catch anywhere and
2: is there a medium that's more transformative for a person like you step into a dark cinema you Mm. get taken somewhere and you're not the same when you leave
6: yeah look i think you know we've i think the conversation about the death of cinema happens every five years or something mm-hmm. and it sort of prevails and, you know, obviously there's always challenges and there's been quite a few challenges over the last few years, but nothing beats that transformative experience of just kind of being immersed in this space um, and kind of having something that kind of imprints uh, on you that way for sure. Uh, can we have another title? Yeah, uh, a film called The Beast. Uh which is a French film starring Lea Sadeau and George McKay. And it's this really intriguing film where it's sort of set in the sort of not too distant future where AI is, you know, sort of taken over quite a bit. And people can go through this po- process of basically purging, uh, you know, unwanted emotions and feelings from past lives. And so this woman goes through this process where she gets transported back in time to different periods in her life. And meets the same man in every time period, <laughs> so it becomes this kind of really interesting sort of love story. Uh, it's actually based on a Joseph Conrad novel. Uh, Joseph Conrad wrote Heart of Darkness, which became Apocalypse Now, and this is uh, another another story of his. And yeah, it's a really intriguing film. Actually, and you know, Lisa does. You know, she's another incredibly you know great European actor. That's sort of also in a James Bond film. Mm-hmm. But uh yeah, fantastic. Yeah, mm-hmm. really film. And the
1: festival's also doing a retrospective of Yorgos Lanthimos. Yeah, the great
6: yeah. That was that was really great to put together. Obviously, you know, with poor things being out and just kind of going gangbusters and winning, you know, all the awards. We just thought it was a great opportunity to kind of look back on his films and uh, he's an interesting filmmaker too where you know, right from the start with his first solo directing film, uh, Ginata, you can sort of see him, uh, you know, the ideas and the obsessions that mm-hmm. he has even now sort of already sort of taking shape. And he, he's an interesting filmmaker in that way with the success he's had where... You know, I feel like Hollywood has bent to his will mm-hmm. uh, in terms of his sensibility rather mm-hmm. than him having to kind of compromise and sort of work within a system. So you see these great actors and talent sort of running to work with him and, you know, not surprisingly, you know, Olivia Coleman won an Oscar with him, you know, Emma Stone's nominated and... Um, I think he's just a really exciting filmmaker. Mm. I
2: remember seeing The Guilty, the Danish film, in the 2018 film, and it was it's a masterpiece. I just yeah. loved it. And it's so simple. And then it was remade with Jake Gyllenhaal. To... Another
0: example. We can't, yeah. we can't handle that. No,
2: one. remakes, yeah. It's embarrassing. Yeah,
6: I know. I'm just kind of making little notes about, oh, I wonder which one they'll remake in this yeah. little lot of films. Yeah, exactly.
2: Yeah. Oh, how exciting. <laughs> uh, now, it runs for three weeks. Yeah, and where are we located?
6: Uh, mostly in Melbourne. We're located at the Lido Cinemas in Hawthorne. It's at Elston Week here at the Classic. Uh, it also is playing in Sydney at the ritz Week as well. So if you happen to be in Sydney at the time, uh, check it out.
2: All right. Well, sorry for butchering your name before. No, that's, <laughs>
6: that's, so I think I'm going to do the share thing and just go with the one name. The
2: well, head to europafilmfestival.com.au for more details. It kicks off tomorrow. Yep. Thursday, 15th of February through to the 11th of March, Spiro. Great pleasure to have you in.
6: Thank you. Triple <laughs> R.
2: We are blessed to be overflowing with Dr. Jen on Breakfast. <laughs> this is Dr. Jen.
7: Good morning. I, I did uh, like, you know, the, the take on let's talk about Valentine's Day, let's talk about dining alone. My take on Valentine's Day is let's talk about scarcity. Oh,
1: okay. yeah,
7: sure yeah. Let's talk about when we don't have enough of things and what it does to us. So there's some really interesting research out there because we know that perceiving scarcity, you know, perceiving not having enough of something has an impact on us. So time, for example, when we perceive that we don't have enough time for things, it just makes us feel, you know, more and more and more overwhelmed and stressed, really interesting research on money, games where they get people to play experiments where suddenly you become really wealthy or suddenly you become really poor, If you suddenly become really poor, you become really focused on the now. So that explains, you know, talking about people in poverty making poor decisions, things like taking on really high-interest loans. It's not a personality flaw. Mm. It's because our brains are hardwired that when we perceive we don't have enough money, we focus really tightly in on what can I do to improve my situation now, even if it's going to have a bad impact on me later. The future is tomorrow's problem. Yeah, the future Mm -hmm. is later. I can't worry about the future. I have to have money today. Yeah. and so I'll take on this loan even if the interest, you know, is impossible. So there's a lot of research into that. But this week I found this really interesting paper which I wanted to share with you about water scarcity because the authors have – they've done all these different studies and these authors basically argue that water scarcity is so profound that it's changed human cultures. And I'm like, yeah, right. But then I read all their – kind of all their evidence. So, I mean, water, right? Important, yes? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we can't live without water. You know, as an individual, if I can't drink water, I die, but also I can't grow crops, I can't have animals, you know. We know is really, really important. Um, bongs,
2: they're huge in nail, aren't they? What? Bongs?
7: Yeah, bongs. Are really <laughs> Say goodbye to those. <laughs> I mean, we could list a million things You need water, right, at all different levels of importance for different people. Um And so these people argue that, so a lack of money makes us focus on the now, the here and now, all of their evidence points to the opposite, that a lack of water makes us focus on the long term which is not what we would have predicted. So let's kind of go back to basics. There's two different ways that people can approach life, two fundamental ways. um, The first is kind of what they call short-term orientation. So this is where, you know, societies tend to be more indulgent, more focused on fun, you know, all the things that we might think, oh, yeah, you know, that sounds great. Let's focus on gratification. What can I do now to have a good time? The other type of society is long-term orientation. So this is living in a way where you're more thinking about the long-term planning, saving, being careful with resources, kind of thrift, perseverance, you know. So it's, I know it's a really basic black and white divide that's not that helpful, but research shows that societies tend to be more of one of those, one of, or the other of those, and people tend to be more or one of, and the other of those. And collapses of
2: empires tend to be associated with the first category.
7: Yeah, because if you're not planning for the future, you don't save your resources, <laughs> you know, it's a bit of a problem. Anyway, so they collected all these different lines of argument. One was they got university students into a lab. They got some of them to read an article. Some of them didn't read an article. The ones that read an article, some of them read an article that talked about, you know, worst water shortages in a, in a thousand years, this really dire story. Another one was a much more um, positive article about climate change, talking about there's going to be more rain. Um, didn't talk about flooding. <laughs> Just talked about more rain. Ample water will be fine. And then they did surveys with these students who'd been exposed to these different ideas in these articles to To get a sense of how much they were thinking about planning for the future. Um, And even just reading an article that suggested either there would be plenty of water in the near future where we live or there'd be very little water in the near future where we live. These students had really different responses to survey questions looking at how much are you interested in thinking about the future how much are you interested in saving money would you buy this thing today or would you save for the future then they did tests like which job would you be more likely to apply for and they actually put job ads out there to see which jobs they'd applied for are you interested in a very stable long-term safe job or you're interested in a really short-term make money quick job so just they did all these different things with these students and showed that yes if you have a sense that there's not very much water are going to be you know around in the future you turn into someone who's much more focused on on let's prepare and then they said well you know in a lab okay we can show it but can we go out into the real world and find an example so what they wanted to do was find two cities that were nearby to one another and very similar in terms of things like temperature um, majority ethnicity religion um Uh, how much people on average earn, you know, can we find two places that are geographically close and that are very, very similar but for whatever reason have very different rainfall? And they did. They found two cities in in Iran that fit that bill. One gets about 300 mil of rain a year. One only gets 50 mil of rain a year. So 50 mil of rain a year, like that's that's not very much. Mm. That's a really, really dry place. And so these two cities, um, the one that gets lots of rain is Shiraz, which, you know, is called, like, that's wine famous, Shiraz. The other one is called Yazd, I think, Yazd. Um, And then they use surveys of people who live in these two cities to see, do they have a difference between long-term orientation and short-term orientation, even though they're very similar in all these other ways um, and completely different again. So even though you live in the same country, you speak the same language, you have all these similarities. If you've grown up in a place where water is quite scarce, your whole future orientation is completely different. And the way you go about your life in terms of do we party today or do we have to be very thrifty and Mm. save for tomorrow. Um, So then they decided to take another step out. And there's a big study that's been going on for a very long time called the World Values Study, where they get people in different countries all around the world to talk about their, you know, values, beliefs. It's been going on for many, many, many years and they had really good data for 87 countries on how much people believe being thrifty and saving for the future is important and exactly the same story. Countries that have a history of water shortage um, agree much more with all of the questions about saving for the future. So these researchers basically say you know, we need to take this into account when we think about how cultures have evolved. With that big, massive study all around the world, they said, let's f- see if we can come up with what the best predictors are for people living in this mindset of long-term orientation. So they looked at income per capita. Um, they looked at corruption because you would think, you know, if you live in a place with high corruption, planning for the future may be silly because Mm. you don't know what the future is going to look like life expectancy maybe if you know you're likely to live a long life that's a really good predictor of you know i need to save for my retirement Mm. kind of thing none of those were as good a predictor of whether people live with this long-term saving thrifty orientation um as how much history uh, like the history of water shortage extraordinary in that country it's crazy right so what do
0: they do what do you do with that information Mm. now that they know that people plan differently
7: Well, I guess we have to think really carefully what does that mean for how, you know, we have to bring that in with our thinking about climate change, because, you know, some parts of the world we know are going to get drier and drier, some parts of the world are going to get wetter and wetter. if more of the world ends up in drought, then maybe that's a really good thing. We're going to get better and better about long-term thinking rather than thinking about, you know, what am I going to do tomorrow? Because you know, that's what we need, you know, to, to be more effective in countering climate change. We need to be better at thinking about the long-term and making better decisions long-term. So maybe if more of the world is going to end up in drought, it's going to be good, it's going to change our thinking, how, how we evolve... Parts of the world, they're going to end up with more water. It's potentially going to have the opposite effect. I mean, it just blew my mind. I wanted to share it with you because yeah. i like, really? And then I read this fact. Oh, my God, listen to this. And I haven't fact-checked it, but it was in a really high-quality journal. They reckon that people are better at detecting the scent of recent rainfall than sharks are at detecting blood. You know that oh, whole wow. argument that like a shark can detect you know a drop of blood from a kilometer away. And again, please don't ring in. I haven't fact <laughs> checked it. Maybe I'm wrong, but we've all heard that urban myth, right? We have this sense that sharks are really good at detecting yeah. blood. The argument that people are even better than that, more sensitive than that, than that at smelling rain. Well, what's the word,
0: Mon? Petrichor. Mm. Petrichor. A, exactly. No, a good petrichor. Your last night, God.
7: Uh, <laughs> oh, didn't I was a it shark. Smell for the amazing. Blood? Oh, it's so good. But, but you know, like it all kind of fits. We've evolved that water is just so essential that it affects. Affects us minute by minute day by day because we need it why wouldn't it also affect us long term yeah and
2: if we know that scarcity can wreak havoc and chaos in our own mind on an individual level just extrapolate that more yeah. broadly and where do you slide to
7: yeah, absolutely. I mean, what do we think it means other than it's—I don't know—just something to think about. Install a water tank. Yeah, <laughs> maybe lots. Yeah, yeah. Shorter
2: showers. <laughs>
7: but, but you know, is the flip side a really positive thing though? That if we have to be prepared for at least less certainty about water, you know, whether we—you you, know—you live in a place where the the models suggest that there'll be more or less water, the fact that water availability might become more unpredictable maybe that's a really good shift for humanity. I mean, don't get me wrong, I, mm. I'm all for fun and gratification and living the, you know, the fun life, but I think planning for the future is probably fairly important mm. at this point. With you know, Our planet is in peril, thinking more about how we can uh, live a more sustainable future, so mm. maybe if water has the power to have such a big impact, the, mm. the unpredictability of water in the future could help us. Yeah, it has
2: a habit of clarifying the thinking. Yeah. 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 Uh, well, Dr Jen, I was going to offer you a glass of water, but <laughs> (laughs) Off the table. Uh, Talk again next week? You bet. Thank you.
5: Triple R on FM, digital, online, and via the app.
2: Marcus Ian Mackenzie is an artist and performer whose 2020 online work, *The Crying Room*, took home the Green Room Award for Best Contemporary and Experimental Performance and the Melbourne Fringe Awards for Best Adaptation to Screen and Best Experimental Work. Now, Marcus, *The Crying Room* is back IRL with *The Crying Room Exhumed*, which kicks off next week at the Substation. And to tell us about it, the self-proclaimed bad dancer and exponent of pseudo-babble and psychedelic world-building joins us now. Marcus, welcome to Breakfasters.
5: Hey, very happy to be here. It's a treat to have you. It's been an emotional few years. It has been a slightly emotional three years. Yeah, yeah it has. But it, who has not had an emotional few
0: years? Right, yeah.
2: <laughs> and how does that play into the crying room? And what is your relationship with sobbing?
5: Oh, let me tell you. So basically, <laughs> uh, this this story, The Crying Room, is about my experience of going to the arts centre one day to see an opera. I was really obsessed with this Puccini opera, and I decided I wanted to go see it. I'm not an opera person, but I decided I wanted to go see it and, uh, I went and operas have, you know, have, I go forever. They're massive. They have three acts. They have multiple intervals. People wear top hats in front of you. So you can't see what's going on on the stage. <laughs> it's very stoked. My girlfriend and I went and basically I really wanted to see, you know, the, the big aria, the big, um, uh, Pavarotti aria. And I was like, yeah, i got to see this. And, um, unfortunately I got a phone call in the second interval, uh, discovering that my brother had died. Oh, wow. So I didn't get to stay for that. Obviously, that's not <laughs> the most important thing in that story. The important thing is my brother dying. But I'm using this work as a way of imagining what it might be like to revisit that opera. Uh, so to answer your question, what's my relationship to sobbing? Uh, I've done quite a bit of sobbing yeah. over the last few years. And
2: do theatres have... Because uh, I know they're, they've are come in, in church... Where do do we find crying rooms?
5: Yeah, that's a great question. A lot of people don't really know what a crying room is. I I certainly didn't. I only found out a few years ago when I was seeing a play myself and my friend was... um, I think she'd had a bit of a bender the night before and she was a bit like, I'm going to have a bit of a vom, I'm going to go out of the theatre. And I was like, no worries. She left her bag and stuff in there. And then at intervals, she never came back. So I went out and I asked the usher, did you see my friend? And she's like, yeah, she's in the crying room. And I was like, the what now, sorry? And she's like, she's in the crying room. And I was like, mm, that's poetically evocative. Tell me more. And she took me to the crying room, which is this funny little isolated box booth at the back of most theaters and as you say churches have them as well you know they're also in like weird places like airports things like this and despite what people think it's not a place um to go and make you cry it's a place that you can go and if you're noisy and you're like disrupting the audience or disrupting the congregation, you can go and like be in this little isolated booth and watch the show. You know, and there's usually like, uh, kind of like this radio uh, booth right now. There's like a little glass window you can watch the show through, you get an audio feed. So it's a very unique, strange experience of watching something which should be live mm-hmm. in this sort of like funny little, and and it should be, you, know, you, sh- you should be with other people hearing other people laughing and crying and bodies and breathing and all that stuff, but actually you're sucked Soundproof. in this little airlock. Soundproof. Soundproof, exactly. Mm. So that's what Crying, so room, no
2: one yes. has to put up with you,
5: yeah. And let me just say, my producer told me to say this my show is does not involve being in a crying, <laughs> room. I'm not put you in any kind of like horrible room or anything like that. It's not a theater amazing. show,
2: but you're playing on the idea of tears being intentional, perhaps. Or, or, well, you tell me. I mean, no. you you get shoved in the crying room if you're crying or if you're trying to be, you don't want to disrupt anyone, but what if a crying room was the intention was to evoke tears?
5: Absolutely, yeah. That's the kind of, like, I guess that's the kind of poetic riff I'm playing on is, as you say, this idea of a, a place that is meant to sort of, like, conceal and, 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 and shut something off. What if it flipped on its head and it was this opposite concept? And I guess, as I said, coming out of the story that I mentioned, I, I think... My me imagining going back to that opera to watch to watch the end of this opera the the, the 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 finale the climax, I guess my thinking was I probably would maybe want to see it in an in an isolated context. Mm. It might be quite an emotional experience mm. for me. But but I suppose you know to like to like rewind a little bit when I made this work and when that event that I just mentioned took place that was right at the start. Of, like, right at the turn of 2019, 2020, December, January. And so the next thing that happened was the world was plunged into this pandemic. And so I pitched this work to the art center to make a- at the art center as a site responsive live work. Uh, but then lockdowns happened. So it actually ended up being this online piece, which sounds horrible. <laughs> I, trust me, I know that an online theater piece sounds horrific. Uh, but, but. Because of the nature of it, um, it was this really beautiful metaphor to look at people being stuck in isolation and being and watching something through a screen that normally should be experienced with people around you in a communal way, being isolated. So your bedroom, your apartment becomes a crying room uh, of sorts. So mm. it was a way to explore that as well.
2: Are you more sensitive these days? Are you, are
5: you triggered to tears more easily? Mm-hmm. I think I'm a pretty sensitive person. I mean, like, that's a, that's a really good question. Uh, yes and no. Like, I think profound experiences of grief, I, I think they, they do open you up and make you more um, empathetic to, to other people's grief, things like this. So you do become more open and absorbed. But, you know, they also, they also harden you. They also shut you off. It's a, it's a complicated thing. Mm. Um, yeah. And this work was developed on site? Uh, at, at the uh, so so okay so bleh, there's there's because this is a follow up. Well, as the title suggests, it's called the Crying Room Exhumed, which is just a pretentious way of saying a sequel <laughs> or a follow up or something like this. But I, I, uh, exhuming means digging something up. So because it was a few years ago now, uh, I'm imagining taking this work and digging it up out of the ground, dusting it off like an archaeological dig, and examining what it means to dig up something quite intense or no the work itself's not intense but the experience of making it was intense so digging it up and going what does it mean to look at this now um that some time has passed but uh in terms of it 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 was made uh on site insofar as it was made very much me in my bedroom going crazy uh in lockdown yeah Uh, and now the follow-up work is being made on site at the substation and what do you do do on stage
0: yeah what does it look like
5: yeah what does it look like um it goes through quite a few different modes. While the audience are mostly sitting down for the show, they do move around the site a little bit. So we go through a few different locations in the substation building. Uh, but fundamentally, like at the core of it, I am doing this sort of... Do you, remember, do you remember John Edwards crossing over the yes. TV show? I don't know if your listeners are going to know this like spicy reference uh, to 2000s television, but he was basically this uh, spiritual medium who would connect with the dead um, people in the room. Super entertaining stuff. I'm sort of channeling a bit of that energy. So it's, it's the showman, it's the entertainer, it's in the round more or less. Uh, it's a little bit talking with the audience. it's yeah, very is there like
0: crowd participation.
5: There's crowd work. Okay. But it's not like participation, like, come up, I'm going to do something. Mm. It's, it's light. Okay. Very not light. Not intimidating. Not intimidating, no. Comedic? Absolutely. Okay.
1: Would oh. your brother like
5: this show? Uh, absolutely, yeah. You know, my brother and I worked together on a, an earlier performance and this is very much hearkening back to that. I'm really trying to reference all the stuff that we made in that. Mm. Uh, yeah, so very, like, absurd and funny a lot of the time. Um, you know, trying to really walk that line. I talk, I talk, I talk about the relationship of ecstasy and grief because I think of it um, when you've felt the extremes of those emotions, which many humans have. It's their fundamental human f- emotions. I, I feel like the horseshoe effect, if you will, is when those two things start connecting and rubbing up. Mm. They, they At their extremes, they have weird similarities. Yeah.
1: You also reference as well, like, the absence of ritual in, like, contemporary, like, world and culture. Is that kind of commenting on your process with grief?
5: Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I talk about the absence of ritual, and I think, I think my own experience of, of grieving in this context was because, because the pandemic happened right at the same time as my own sort of grieving experience. You know, people... People, people were dealing with their own stuff big time. Every, everyone, everyone was grieving in that at that time. Their own experience of the world had been the rug had been pulled out. So there wasn't a lot of space for um, people banding together, and I mean physical, literal space, and also like psychological or emotional abstract space. There wasn't a lot of space for people to come together and and deal with things as a group. People were very fragmented. So when I say the absence of ritual, I think. I think the pandemic is an interesting sort of microcosm to look at 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 the ritual it's always hard saying our culture because i don't know whose culture i'm talking about i can speak for myself and in my in my cultural experiences i think um, i think in contemporary life we don't have that many structures in place to 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 grieve together and i think there are definitely other cultures particularly ancient cultures in, in this country and, and and around the world that do have much more in depth um, and and actually just not not, not doesn't have don't think it in this like holy way actually kind of quite just everyday grief is something that is dealt with as a group and you process it together
2: yeah <laughs> Well, the work is The Crying Room Exhumed. It takes place at the substation in Newport uh, Tuesday the 20th to Saturday the 24th of February. It's an hour-and-a-half show. It's What happened to you is quite operatic.
5: Absolutely. Mm. Yeah, we love a bit of opera. And listen, you might get a little touch of opera. <laughs> <laughs> I feel lucky. Some uh, all
2: right, The Crying Room Exhumed. Marcus Ian Mackenzie is the artist and you can head to the substation.org.au for more details. Marcus, great pleasure to have you in. Thanks very much for having me. Woo! Ah,
5: that's right. Triple R.
0: Thanks for listening to a podcast of the best bits of Breakfasters, the Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Feel free to get in touch with us via Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or via the Triple R website.